Hi, I'm Eric Hoyt. I'm the author of the newly expanded edition of Orca the Whale Called Killer and co-founder, director of the Far East Russia Orca Project. My dream for 2020 and beyond is that the Orca captures in Russia have ended, the southern community off Vancouver Island begins to turn around, and that we can get back to the central business of ensuring that whales and humans in the North Pacific can live together. I would like to see 30% of the ocean designated as effective marine protected areas by 2030. Hi, I'm Mark Laren Young, author of Orcas Everywhere, and welcome to Scanit and part two of our first ever two-part episode, my conversation with the amazing orca expert, Eric Hoyt. Now, I've been trying to keep our episodes this season timeless, but I feel like part one of this conversation was released into a totally different world. Part one was before the virus hit North America. Part two, as I record this intro, I'm pretty much quarantined, and so is most of North America. My wife, our producer Rain, has autoimmune issues, which puts her in the high-risk category for COVID-19. So today, our motto for the show, that this is for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts, feels more like a battle cry as some world leaders are trying to fight a pandemic with magical thinking and pixie dust. If we don't want to kill thousands, maybe millions of people, Social distancing is horrifying and essential. We need to wash our hands a lot. We all need to act like we're already infected, because we might be. We are officially living in a sci-fi horror movie, minus the zombies. And seriously, how do all of the best horror movies start? Some idiot politician ignores a scientist. Please don't ignore the scientists. And since you're here, you already know we have to protect this planet. That's why Scan is focused on champions of this planet, like Eric Hoyt. Eric wrote the book on orcas, Orcas, the Whale Called Killer. The fifth edition just came out. But in this episode, we're talking about his books for young readers, including Creatures of the Deep, Encounters with Strange Sea Creatures, Close Encounters of the Whale Kind, and his fight to stop the Russians from capturing orcas and selling them to China. As always, Scan is brought to you by our amazing and essential pod at Patreon.com, including Chantel Shawnee, Surratt, Susie Venuta, Simon McNair, Darren Lernyang, Robert Anderson, Nancy Campbell, Glenda McFarlane, Trevor Strong, Howard Siegel, Eagle Wing, and Yosef Wask. If you like what we're doing and want to hear more about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment, please join our Patreon pod. Even a dollar a month is a huge help because the more subscribers we get, the more our Patreon campaign is featured and the more sponsors we, sponsors we get. Also, Rain and I pay our bills and Scanna's bills doing jobs that are pretty much all on hold right now. And it's pretty hard to sell books when bookstores are closed. So those Patreon sponsorships, they matter more than ever this month. Now, we do have all sorts of awesome perks for joining us and we're trying to get enough support to release more episodes and provide proper transcripts of all our interviews. Also, please subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes with eco-heroes like Robert Bateman, Daniel Polly, Takaya Blaney, Autumn Pelche, Robbie Bond, and many, many more. Scan is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, the publishers of my three new books for young readers, Orcas Everywhere, Orcas of the Sailor Sea, that's for elementary school readers, and Big Whales, Small World, a beautiful board book for babies. For more about my books for young readers, please visit orcaseverywhere.com. You got time to check it out. And now, here's Eric Hoyt on Orcas Everywhere. Can you talk about your work in Russia and how that happened? Because that's an amazing plot twist in a, in a person's life to suddenly end up in Russia for as long as you have or end up dealing with, with whales in Russia for as long as you have. 
actually when we were when we were working um, spending time with the killer whales in BC we realized that there were these other populations well further north but then uh, Craig Matkin started working with them off Alaska and his colleagues and we sort of realized there were killer whales on the other side but nobody had studied them and in 19 I had done some collaborations with various Japanese scientists and had been going back and forth to Japan to help with the um, different communities that were interested in starting up whale watching and so I'd made about 10 trips to Japan far-flung areas you know like Ogasawara and uh, Okinawa and Shikoku Island several locations and up to Hokkaido and I realized this one collaborator that I'd worked with Hal Sato who uh, had been up with Paul Spong at uh, Orca Lab uh, early on and was just this passionate young Japanese woman who originally wanted to be an orca whale trainer and then went up to Orca Lab and decided you know, started learning about them in the wild and threw that idea away completely and, you know, just wanted to be out in the wild with them. And she actually translated. She was like 17 or 18 the first summer she went up there. The first edition of my Killer Whale book had just come out and she bought it in one of the local stores, probably a Telegraph Cove and, or a Lerpe. And she, um, took it back to Japan and she was she was still in school high school I think high school or maybe the first year out and she um, started translating it even though I mean her English was at that time was not all that great but this is a massive diversion I'm giving you but I, I think it'll it'll lead into the Russian story quite nicely if you don't mind that's great she um, wrote to me and I was had just moved to Montreal at that point and she said, oh, I um, saw your book and I decided I would translate it so my friends could read about what orcas are like. And, um, you know, and I thought, oh, she's that's great. You know, it was really chuffed, as they say in Scotland. And I, I said, yeah, you know, I'd love to see it. And, uh, you know, I thought it was, you know, a few pages or something. And lo and behold, you know, three weeks later, I get this huge package in the post which is a 400-page hand-lettered, you know, with Japanese characters of my entire book. Oh, wow. And it had footnotes on every page, and she was, or every other page, because she was trying to explain different terms that wouldn't mean something directly for a Japanese person, so she'd heavily footnoted it. And she'd also annotated it with her illustration. She was actually a, a good artist as well. And so she'd have little drawings, you know, and then there'd be a, something that said, like, can you get this? Like, in other words, she thought the illustration would uh, show somebody be able to communicate it if you couldn't quite get it from her translation. This is she did this with a dictionary painstakingly, you know. And so I, I still have the have it on my shelf. And every once in a while I look at it because it's just, you know, I. I just cannot, cannot imagine the amount of work that was, you know. I mean, well, anyway. So this is like 1982 or so, or 83. 15, 16 years later, I get interest from a Japanese publisher in translating the book. And I said, I will do it only if my friend can supply the translation. And, you know, I talked about it with my friend, with Hal Sato, and at first she said, no, I can't do it. I'm not a professional translator. And, you know, what I did before was very extremely rough and, you know, won't stand up. And I said, please consider it. It would be, you know, anyway, of course, she said yes. And they paid her to do the translation. I don't know what they paid her, but I'm sure she worked, you know, far harder than they ever imagined. And, you know, had an editor at the at the publishing house and came up with this translation. And that was the kind of fulfillment of that period. And but when I was going back to Japan around the time the book came out, we started talking about, you know, what she wanted to do with with killer whales. And we were both had found out that a Japanese aquarium, she was sort of my source on Japanese 
news and inside stuff with what all the aquariums were doing. You know, she traveled around and it was brilliant because um, she got a heads up that the Nagoya Aquarium was going to, had a huge budget, was going to spend it on buying killer whales, you know, and exhibit lots of them. And they were going to get them from Russia because at that point, every place else was closed down and they'd never been captured in Russia before. So that was our heads up. And we thought, we've talked about going to Russia, to Kamchatka, to um, look at killer whales and to try and, you know, see if you could do a photo ID site. We didn't even know if it was logistically possible or, or what was possible. So at one of these um, conferences in uh, Japan that I was part of, I got a Russian scientist that I'd been corresponding with invited, who had, who had worked in Kamchatka a lot, um, Alexander Burden, with Hal Sato, and the three of us, and Sasha's wife, Tanya, traveled all around Hokkaido. And th this is in, in the new edition of the book. There's, you know, these stories, some of these stories, most of them. And we traveled around Hokkaido, and we went to the uh, communities that are right opposite the Kuril Islands, where you could actually almost went out on a boat, didn't see killer whales, but saw other dolphins and that sort of thing, porpoises. But you could almost see into the windows of the Russian homes across the way. So it wasn't that we, – we, we sort of got a feel for things. And on the back of a napkin, a serviette, we – planned this feasibility pilot study that Sasha would do with Hal Sato. And so um, I managed to raise the money from a couple of groups, uh, American NGOs, and um, we got just scraped together barely enough money to get them out there to see whether it was possible, you know, how you would set it up, all that kind of things. I didn't go out for a few years. It was led really... Hal was teaching people photo ID and acoustics. Uh, Sasha Alexander Burden had amazing contacts in the area, as well as in Russian universities and Moscow State University, and could get young students. And it was always defined, besides Hal and myself, it was to be a Russian project. We were not going to import, uh, you know, to bring other biologists who would just study them and then leave. So it was it was a kind of training project that would leave a legacy in Russia. And I remember after the second or third year, I, I called it a long-term project. And I think it was Robin Baird, who's a good friend of mine and wonderful researcher, said, oh, you can't call it a long-term project. It's only been two or three years. I said, yes, but it's going to be a project, <laughs> you know. And uh, I, I stuck to it. And we have gone out every single year for 20 years wow. with, with different funding almost every year and uh, just, you know, creative ways to get people out there. And some seasons, I remember one season they were out there and I got, it was a satellite call at that point because at that point, you know, we, did, we didn't have as good transmission as you can get now sometimes with, you know, through uh, mobile phones. But that everything, all the all the supplies had been wiped out. And what had happened was they had taken their boat down the coast to the island, which was kind of like the base camp. And because it was very late, they pulled the Zodiacs, you know, a couple of Zodiacs up on the beach, fairly high up and everything. And uh, had just, and it left the, you know, some of the groceries there. It was a fairly safe island. There were, you know, the, the issue in, Kamchatka is largely bears, and that's partly why you set yourself up on little islands so you're not bothered by bears and other other animals. So, you know, they thought everything was fine. They'd get it in the morning. They crawled up the rocks, you know, which is some distance up, and there was a tidal wave in the night, earthquake. You know, it's one of the most, well, you know, the ring of fire. So... Uh, they lost everything. The engines were all flooded. Groceries were all gone. So, you know, the decision was, do we do we abort the whole season? But, well, everybody agreed. They, You know, they were getting paid just really subsistence and all the supplies. And, you know, there wasn't really any pay. And But 
they decided, well, no chocolate this year, no no snacking on garlic or anything. You know, we'll we'll get through it, and they and they did, and had a had a valuable season. But so so that was the kind of people that that uh, Alexander Bergen was choosing. You know, he had a great um, eye for um, for talent, as it were, in a, in a 19 or 20 year old who would become. You know, I think we had we've had now four or five PhDs, and I've lost count on the number of MSCs that have come through the project, all with Moscow State University and St. Petersburg State University, two of the the two you know most well known best universities in the main part of Russia. Um, a few from others as well. Most of them have stayed with the project and uh, contribute to it, and some of the older ones are now bringing their students. So. I feel like it'll continue no matter what happens. And uh, in fact, a couple years ago, I ventured the idea that uh, you know that I that I'd be willing to just let go, and you know they take it over completely. And uh, they were very kind. And uh, well, I don't know why why they did it, but they begged me to stay, which was very nice of them. But because I do I do feel attached to it, and I feel like it's a it was an it was a chance to take. What I saw happen in British Columbia and the attachment that people get to individual whales and families and communities and dreaming, you know, hoping that it could happen in a place like Russia where there was no connection with whales. You know, they were they were coming out of whaling, you know, for that matter, you know, more recently than other countries. That's Greenpeace was was up there, you know, putting themselves between uh, Russian factory ships and harpoons and you know so I mean there was was no photo ID tradition in Russia even by the late 1990s on the other hand Russia had opened up with the um, end of the Soviet Union in um, uh, 1991 and you know there were it was a nice period even the even the uh, Russian Far East which, for that matter, Petropolsk-Kamchatsky, which is the main city in Kamchatka in the Russian Far East, was actually closed to Soviet citizens as well. So it, Alexander Burden was one was a person who could go there because he was a biologist and had a special dispensation in a way. But it had a small community, relatively, uh, certainly compared to it now, that was supporting um, the military installations that were in the Russian Far East, and it was closed. And so you couldn't have done this study in the 70s and 80s, even if you wanted to. You know, you could, I think, uh, Sasha Bergen had looked at sea otters and and fur seals, some of the more land-based species, but or at least that have a terrestrial component. But you couldn't just sort of take hydrophones and be out there, you know, doing the kind of stuff that we're doing now and we were nervous about it in the early years and and did get looked at sometimes and but you know it's it's been okay certainly wouldn't want to do any permanent installations there of sound equipment it would be suspicious i think all that stuff kind of came together right at the time it did and there was this opportunity that we were just lucky to be able to seize i mean there there was uh, another group of scientists, some of the people who worked in BC and Alaska, who also had proposed something with um, Russian scientists around the same time, but it didn't go through. Ours was, you know, tiny by comparison, but it's been more organic in the way it's grown. And, and in that way, it's kind of set down very firm, long lasting roots, which which I hope will be there um, in the future. And and it, you know it because the Russian students were there, and initially they were good scientists. And it was after three or four years when they saw that some of their the orcas that they had been studying were captured, and two of them got killed. Well, they became conservationists then when they saw their own killer whales being taken. And that that's kind of the thing that I thought might happen if you got to know them as individuals, you'd get this attachment and. It's beautiful, really, that it came to fruition, you know, and that it uh, managed to happen. You know, there were a lot, there are lots of um, 
trees in the road, but we managed to uh, to get over them and to to make it happen. Now, you were nice enough to check out uh, Orcas Everywhere in my book for younger readers. Now, you've done a few books for younger readers. Can you talk about those? I did a um, a book on whales for age ten and up uh, called Whale Rescue in oh I can't remember two thousand and five. But I've also I've worked on um, deep sea creatures and. I've taken um, time out. I sort of have a couple of parallel careers going, and one of them I do like to write for kids and and also uh, adults and the and and work on other things besides whales. So I wrote a book called Creatures of the Deep that came out in 2001. Kind of looked at what some of the new species we were starting to see then, and there were some photographs that started to become available of species that were you know, in the mesopelagic, you know, beyond the, the light zone in the ocean, and a few deeper, but not many. And I always like to be kind of at the edge, you know, if I can do it. I love being a pioneer, writing about something that hasn't been written about a lot, you know. So this was a chance to explore some of those things. And I, I worked on the narrative structure for it a lot for Creatures of the Deep. I thought, I, okay, how am I going to tell this story? And so I, I developed three different uh, narratives, and one of them was uh, uh, imagining a journey from the top of the ocean in the surface waters and going to the very bottom to the Marianas Trench. And as you went down, I sort of imagined this. I called it an eye monster camp, you know, because nice. I thought, you know, I was painting the picture for people of what, what you would see and also what you would hear. And so you go into down these layers and you meet different creatures. But at the same time, I was telling the history of the exploration of these areas. So I could have the early history in the top, Alexander the Great, who was, uh, you know, was one of the teachers of Aristotle, who was really the first marine biologist. And, you know, some of the adventures there with, you know, putting a, you know, half globe, uh, over a piece of water, and you know, he he really wanted to get down there and see what was down there. Not Aristotle, but Eric's Alexander, but Aristotle, you know, combing the beaches and finding all these things, and you know, he knew dolphins um, actually could be photo ID. That was you can trace photo ID to Aristotle. You can trace a lot of things. Cool. Too. And and he really had the first species list for the Mediterranean, or the first species list anywhere that we know that's written down. So as I went deeper and deeper, I could go to more recent stories. So it kind of had a, a good narrative um, line as well. And of course, down to the bottom, then you get to the expeditions by Walsh and Picard to go to the Marianas Trench and everything that went, that happened there. So I, uh, you know, I did a lot of research and reading and interviewing and loved telling that story. And then the second narrative, in the part two of the book is going from the smallest species to the largest. So, you know, I start out with, with various plankton and, and then kind of move up copepods and move up through, you know, it's kind of like fish eat fish until you get up to uh, sharks and killer whales and top, you know, animals that are at the top of the food chain. So I had a little bit of whales in there, which was nice. And, and then the third part, I imagined a journey walking along the world's longest mountain chain, which is at the bottom of the sea. So if you start in Iceland, and I had made a lot of trips to Iceland. I love Iceland. Being there something like 20 times, and it's not far from where I live in the UK. And there's a place in Iceland, uh, in the northeast Iceland, where the mid-ocean ridge comes ashore. Well, it comes ashore in the Rajanis Peninsula in the southwest. It's the only place other than the Azores and a couple of, I, I, I don't even know if there are any other islands in the entire ocean. But, but the mid-ocean ridge, you know, it goes from Iceland. If you start in Iceland, you can walk along this ridge. You can imagine a journey along this ridge going underwater, then walking along, you know, coming to Azores and then going around the southern tip of uh, Africa and going across the Indian Ocean as it does. This mountain range continues, and you're you're walking in the Rift Valley. Okay, so you're 
it's what you're seeing and and it's telling the whole geology of that and how you know scientists put that together originally which is a fascinating story with plate tectonics and then the then it comes up into the pacific and so i take the reader up to the pacific to the galapagos and off the galapagos in 1977 or 78 the scientists from woods hole and other institutions for the first time got a glimpse that there was something happening down there that was strange and different and that's where they found this whole other ecosystem going on with these giant tube worms and um, species that had evolved to be able to stand extraordinary temperatures because this is where the you know the mantle sort of uh, deep hot molten lava of the earth is coming out into these uh, black smokers and you know letting off temperatures that are you know like uh, pottery ovens and more and and yet you get creatures that are along there you know that are and and you know small organisms as well as well a new branch of life called archaeans that they assumed were bacteria were actually actually turned up there so this was was another incredible revolution that I wanted to talk about in this book. And so the last part of it is that. And, and of course, they thought, okay, first, you know, how are these species thriving at the bottom of the sea or, or at the top of this mountain range? But it's still, you know, very, very far down, far away from light or anything else. Well, it turns out that they're chemosynthetic. We've got another strategy for survival that... Um, scientists didn't know about and of course they thought well maybe this is an anomaly but you know over the last few decades since then they're turning up all over the place so they're you know they're in the atlantic and the indian ocean and every time they go down to these areas they're finding new species so it's terribly exciting time so i did the book creatures of the deep i've gone through a long explanation of the narrative because i love sitting around devising narratives and sometimes i'll spend months to do it before i think i have something that can tell a story but then that sort of grew into a set of other books and one of them is um, a younger kid's book called weird sea creatures where i just you know looked at some of these new species but because creatures of the deep 2001 was uh, published in 2001 we wanted to do it again 10 years later. And the fact that there had been this 10-year decade of ocean exploration, the census of marine life, which went from 2001, really right when my book came out, to 2010-11, and the results were starting to come out by 2012, I started writing the new edition, which came out in 2014, and put a fourth part you know, updated the other three parts because there'd been, uh, by that time, the Titanic director had been to the bottom of the sea. James Cameron. Yeah, sorry, James Cameron. Uh, so I got his story into there. And of course, we've had somebody else since then. But um, the main thing was the fact that we had this decade of discovery when we were identifying 2,000 new species per year. Crazy. So and it was... Yeah, and it was something like um, $600 million worth of expeditions, nearly, you know, getting close to um, a billion. And uh, it was something like 80, 70, 80, 90 expeditions, maybe more than that. And, uh, you know, staggering number of uh, specimens. And, of course, the bottleneck was having the taxonomists that could deal with all this new and strange life because it does take time to do taxonomy you've got to to identify species you've got to go and um, find out you know what else is related to that species you, you've got to put it in a context so it requires a lot of museum and other research so research was starting to come out in 2012 and 13 and the uh, bbc and discovery channel and others were starting to do their uh, Blue Planet, you know, and their their kind of work in the deep sea. And so I started getting access to a lot of these fantastic animals. And uh, so that's why I did the second edition. So now I'm actually working on 
another kid's book that's going to grow out of out of uh, even newer photographs that we have. So it's just th this is like the moon for us now, you know, the deep sea. There's so much yet to discover down there. And um, it's just a really exciting thing to be part of in some small way. Can you talk about what young readers want to know about whales? Because I know you've written about whales for them, and I'm sure you talk to young people all the time. What are their questions? What do they want to know about orcas and other whales? Depends the age, of course. And the, the younger ones tend to have the, the most uh, interesting and off-the-wall questions because they don't, they're not censoring themselves at all, and they're, you know, they're just really open to things. And what, one was some young girl saying, um, when, I, when you play the sounds, that's actually a really good talking point. And, and they said, that sounds like my, my cat can do that. <laughs> sounds like my cat do you think my do you think my cat can talk to the killer whale or or can the can the orca talk to the cat you know and could they communicate so there's a question <laughs> that requires a, a skillful answer i don't know how i answered that one i can't remember but but it's difficult to answer of course it's it's great talking to young audiences when i talk to audiences there's usually some families and some young people even if it's a more adult talk and uh it's great because you know i think it goes back to the thing a lot of us have which is uh when we um in my generation you first encounter a whale in a natural history museum as a skeleton and you walk in to these places and and maybe you're interested in dinosaurs before because you've heard of them and then suddenly you look up if it's the Museum of Natural History in New York or or you find the room in Edinburgh, Scotland or Toronto. You find the room where there's a blue whale and you look at it and you realize it's a lot bigger than the dinosaurs, you know, and it's alive today. It's still living. And then you find out as a kid that they were almost killed off. In fact, there are not that many left of, of blue whales and some species, you know, and they're endangered. And then you find out that some countries are still killing, you know. So I think you start to put these facts together and you, you know, you go to the library or these days you go on your phone um, or your iPad and you, you plug it in and you start, putting these things together and you know for me the blue whale even though i never in a million years thought i would study whales or look at whales or write about whales, there was a piece of my brain where the blue whale was parked you know and i said that is an amazing creature an amazing feat of evolution and and um someday i wouldn't mind looking into that and I, I do remember, you know, seeing blue whales the first time in the St. Lawrence was very special. And, uh, but not getting anywhere near them. But then um, off of Iceland uh, in the 1990s, had many blue whale experiences. And, and at one point, I remember actually off of the Snifels Peninsula, Snifels Ness, near, near the uh, Snifels Yokel, which is the the big white volcanic crater where the um, film Journey to the Center of the Earth, the original, was uh, filmed. And what, what the Jules Verne story is based on, that they went down this volcano to the center of the Earth. Well, that volcano, Mark Kowardin and myself were off of um, the west coast of Iceland in the 1990s and had seven blue whales around our boat at one time. And at that time, we thought there were about 500 blue whales in the Atlantic. They're, they're more now, or at least the counts are higher. But it was, you know, in fact, we had a significant percentage of the entire North Atlantic blue whale population around our boat. And it was, it was a humbling and extraordinary experience. Wow. Have you come across any uh, young activists for whales over recent times? Because you're seeing so many young people getting 
in front of climate change, not just Greta Thunberg, but others who are just becoming real leaders. And I've been talking to some. Are there any who you've encountered who've sparked you? Yeah, I'm just about, you know, to go on the road with this book. So, and I and I haven't given any talks um, for actually almost. A, uh, well, I've given a lot of talks on my marine protected area work in in technical meetings, but not um, popular talks for a couple years or even a year and a half, maybe. So it's probably I'm gonna. That's a good question for, you know, another month from now. But um, uh, thinking back, you know, I'm very intrigued with the kind of support and passion that has been engendered by Greta's uh, work over the last couple of years. It's absolutely fantastic. You do wonder to what extent could whales be part of that picture? I mean, of course, they, they, you know, the ocean is a huge, huge part of the whole global warming uh, climate emergency issue, and we know that, and everyone knows that. And in many ways, the the whales are the way that people of all ages can get connected to the ocean. We've seen that happen, you know, it, with um, you know the whale trail with uh, the southern community all up and down the coast is building that connection with local people. Similar things. In British Columbia, whale watching in many parts of the world is bringing people out and they get connected. You know, I saw it in Boston, where I lived for a while in the late 1980s, the uh, humpback whales offshore, you know, intensive whale watching there with, with scientists on board produced um, the photo IDs that really identified a huge population of something like several thousand photo IDs, and they also had the largest numbers. They were taking out about a million people a year. From wow. For total, this is like um, 18 boats, seven operators. And I calculated at one point before the proposal for the Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary came, came about, I calculated that there were about 10 million people that had some sort of relationship with whales, had seen whales for the first time off that coast. And it's very easy to see them, very, you know, 99% reliable, and humpbacks are performers. And it's not just kids going crazy over it, it's everybody. And when somebody, you know, was Defenders of Wildlife magazine, which, which I was working for at the time, I was writing stories for them freelance, and I was a field correspondent, and I was fortunate to be watching while this proposal came up for a national marine sanctuary in the area where the whale watching was happening and the um, whales were being seen most frequently and it's also you know around a big fishing area and everything else and i know that if all those people were not connected to those whales there would be no way that area would ever have become a marine protected area you know, it was simply because there was a, a human connection between a lot of people and uh, and those whales. And um, I mean, because it's a very, you know, strongly entrenched fishing area, the whole Gulf of Maine, you know, the New England lobstermen and all of that. And of course, there's still some, you know, there's still issues there with everything, with the fishing and whale watching. And, you know, it's a balance you know, it's a heavily polluted, air, uh, populated area. Um, but the whales continue to be ambassadors for the ocean that we need to draw on. You know, most of the species in the ocean, as I learned uh, in Creatures of the Deep, and of course we all know it, don't come to the surface. They'll come right to the surface, aren't visible. And whales and other marine mammals and seabirds and turtles occasionally, very occasionally, a few sharks. They're, they're the ambassadors. They're the ones that we can see, you know, especially the whales, being tethered to the surface by the need to breathe air. That, that makes them the ambassadors for everything else, for all the biodiversity that's, that's in there, um, and for the health of the ocean. 
you know, in terms of climate change and everything else. There, there isn't a movement that I know of that's, you know, anywhere near. I mean, there certainly isn't a movement like what Greta has done with the climate emergency. But I, I think the whales will stay as part of it, and, and perhaps they'll grow, you know, as people realize that they are also monitors for the health of the ocean. If you start getting whales that are washing up dead, you know, and when I say whales, I mean, you know, whales, dolphins, porpoises, and, and, and actually marine mammals too, all, you know, all the pinnipeds and the sirenians, you know, they, they're indicators of the health of the ocean. You can tell a lot about the health from, from them and how they're, you know, if they're, if they're breeding successfully and they're feeding and they look healthy, reproductive rate is good, you know, you, you have a, an idea that that piece of ocean or wherever they go is supporting them. So I think that their role in the ocean is really, really strong. And it's just, you know, more getting more people to realize that um, will help will help everybody. Now, you mentioned something just a moment ago about the humpbacks being performers. And there was something that really struck me in your book that, that I've cited a few times, where you talk about the friendlies, you know, that the, the whales seem to have a sense of when to show up and who to show off for. Can you talk just a bit about that? Yeah, that's kind of a phenomenon that we started to see. People started to see really with gray whales uh, and, and humpbacks occasionally. Friendlies, I mean, those are the ones that are coming really close to the boat. And of course, with gray whales, it, it's almost a bit ridiculous how close they come. And I'm not sure about all, all of that and how how good that is for whales, you know, to be honest. I realized this in redoing my book. You know, we have this sort of natural human desire to get closer and closer. You know, we're visual creatures, largely. And uh, we want to fill our frames with, you know, what we see. In a way, I think more and more, the older I get, the more I'm, I'm thinking about the best way to observe wildlife is to stand off a bit and almost, I mean, the, the bird watchers, you know, have kind of perfected the blind idea, you know, because birds are so easily, uh, a lot of, a lot of species are easily, um, uh, if you want to watch them close, you, you hide, you know, and you make yourself unobtrusive, but also then you see natural behavior. So, you know, I mean, it, it makes us excited, you know, yes, having a, um, having them so big, so close, all of that, you know, I'm no different. I got, I get, still get really excited about that. I think it's, it's wrong to encourage it, you know, to try and make it happen in any way. You know, it's got to happen accidentally. You know, that's, that's the sort of magic of it, letting the magic happen, which may mean you need to be, you know, you can't have quick trips and, you know, force the thing. But there are, there are species that are, seem to be coming closer to humans, um, like humpbacks and gray whales and sometimes orcas and, uh, sometimes minke whales, you know, in some parts of the world. I think we could, we can, we can just appreciate it, but we, you know, we shouldn't abuse it. We have to be really careful not to abuse that because I, I think we have to be aware that whenever they are doing something like that and are close to us, they're not feeding themselves. They're not, they're not doing things that are essential for their survival. You know, as a predator, yes, you could argue that, um, predator social mammal, they're checking out new things in their, environment and that's you know that has survival value you know that's the way i sort of rationalized it but um i do think we have to be um we have to be careful it's exciting but we have to be careful about it i was just thinking about what you said about the orcas seem to know when we're friendly too you know i think everybody i've ever spoken to spent time with orcas has their fictionally implausible story about the orcas showing up you know i now have a few which is amazing considering how few times I've encountered orcas and uh, just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. It's, it's cosmic as we used to say in the, in the late sixties and early seventies, but you know, who knows how it happens, but they do, they do show up at the most unusual times sometimes. And, uh, you know, I, th I think it comes down to the fact that the natural world 
is a, an absolutely wondrous place, you know, and, you know, we're so used to being urban creatures, even if we live in, in villages and, you know, we're terrestrial urban creatures and uh, we live in very built environments, most of us. And it's just such a uh, fantastic experience to be out where that's not the case. And I, I love that about Johnson Strait in the early years. And I, and I also loved it about Russia, you know, which is much wilder in, in many ways uh, in the Russian Far East along Kamchatka and, the, and in the Commander Islands. But in, in a way, you, the best thing you can do is just kind of stand back in awe and let it happen and try and take notes in your head about uh, what's happening and try not to uh, impart too much of the human side, but, you know, try and see it. I don't know. It's really, you know, impossible for us to do it. But if, but if we want to get an idea of why they're coming close or what they're doing, we have to think about it from their point of view too. And it's really nice. And I don't have any kind of, kind of uh, wise words about why it happens and why it, it seems, seems to uh, happen at the, either the most opportune times or times when we uh, least expect. Um, and it really transforms the day or the week or the month or the year. But it is part of the magic of nature. I, I run uh, along the beaches here and I, I run every other day, do long runs. And, you know, I, I, I go off the, the paths and I try and find wild areas. I love running along the Jurassic cliffs because i know there there are dinosaurs in there that are tunneling out i've yet to see one but you know you do you do see the uh, ammonites on the beaches that's you know that's evidence that that the earth is much older than any of us could ever imagine but i think being open to these things is the key thing you're never going to see anything if you're carrying around your um, city head or your you know all your prejudices and all your thoughts, you know, that are storming through your head on that day. You need to clear it and open yourself up. Cool. Since you just mentioned Russia again, can we go back to Russia and can you just talk about how the whale jail happened and ended? Last year, 101 whales, 90 belugas and 11 orcas were captured in the Ahotsk Sea the southwestern part of the Ahotsk Sea, which is the big body of water between Kamchatka and the, the main part of Russia. And it's a kind of a remote area, but it's the area where they've been catching killer whales and belugas for aquariums and shipping them to China, uh, Japan, and uh, other places. Well, with the killer whales, only China and within Russia. And uh, the captures have been happening first one was 2003 and then there was a big gap and but for the last five or six years intensively uh there have been a number happening every year probably more than 20 now have been shipped to three new marine parks marine zoos in um, china that are building and and uh, china has something like 50 facilities that can display or display cetaceans, small cetaceans, and they're building new ones every year. And so it's it's a huge problem. And so the Russian captors were getting permits, but last year completely started taking as many as they could beyond what the permits were asking for or anything else. And at the same time, there was a group in Sakhalin Island who were aware of this, actually had had a talk from uh, one of our Far East Russia Orca Project members the year before and had become politicized on this issue. And I do think that's the core of it because there, were, there was a lawyer in that group who was really looking at the legality of what these captors were doing and was preparing a case on it, which has since successfully been argued. But meanwhile, these all these whales were stuck in these enclosures. By about last October, November, some of the Russian activists 
were filming it and releasing the videos, and uh, there were a number of uh, American and other groups that were starting to get wind of this, including a lot of the people who helped with um, the Free Willy Keiko work years ago when he was released back into the wild from uh, the Mexican aquarium where he was, back into the waters of Iceland, and he swam to Norway and then died. He was an older whale and a male, and but it was, you know, there were things that were learned on that. So there was, there was an attempt to try to get these whales released and a lot of noise about it and everything else. And the legal case went through and they were ordered not to uh, take them, not to ship them to China or anywhere else and to release them. However, they didn't release them. And that initial order expired at the end of the year. And so uh, additional legal work had to be done. But then by that time, it's winter in Russia and, you know, the the scientists in our group in Far East Russia Orca Project were allowed to go there and photograph all of the uh, killer whales for um, photo ID and to assess their condition. One of the orcas looked very bad and uh, subsequently, we believe, died. The captor said he was just released or he escaped. And three of the belugas probably died. So um, recently, over the last couple months, Finally, they have started to uh, release them, to take them on a three or four day journey to um, the Ahotsi from where they were captured in Srednaya Bay near Vladivostok, which is quite a distance. Well, it's three or four days drive in uh, big trucks, you know, taking them in tanks, uh, in uh, makeshift tanks, keeping them wet, you know, the and getting and then putting them back into the into the water and hoping for the best and doing it in groups of two orcas at a time, two or three at a time, um, until all ten. Only in the last couple of weeks were finally released, and there was a lot of criticism. Quite naturally, certainly the experienced foreign vets were not invited to take part in that, um, but there has been some uh, monitoring uh, and some of them were tagged uh, with, you know to monitor where they went and uh, it appears that the killer whales are surviving the orcas are surviving and some of them are joining up with other orcas that were in the area that are these are all uh, mammal eating orcas so their uh, social systems are a little bit more fluid than the fish eating orcas, uh, similar to other side of the North Pacific, the orcas that we know in British Columbia and Washington State. In a sense, that's that makes it a little easier, potentially, perhaps, for them to um, readjust and to join up. They were young orcas. There were a couple of them that were a little bit older, and I mean, they were all um, uh, not um, feeding just on milk. But there were some that were quite young and probably uh, would need older whales traveling with them. So, you know, uh, there's a chance that they could survive. And I think based on what we've seen the last few weeks, there's a good chance. We do have the photo IDs, so we'll be able to check in future years. I mean, our Far East Russia Orca Project doesn't work in this area. We work on the other side of Kamchatka, which is uh, many hundreds of miles away. But um, there is another researcher uh, that we know that works in this area who has some photo IDs that, that we cooperate with and have you know, worked with. And um, we should be able to um, find out how they do over late September, early October, because by that time everybody's out of the field season. So it'll be next year, next summer, before we can really tell. And meanwhile, not all the belugas have been released. So that's still in process, and that there is um, evidence that there won't be any quotas issued for catching killer whales next year. So then there's certainly no, none captured this year. It's probably there's still another month window in which they could be captured if they were if it were done illegally. So 
um, you know, we always are watching September because that's a month when researchers tend to start leaving and the captors might come in and if the weather's good enough, try and capture some. So they make a lot of money doing it. It's the million dollar fish all over again that we had in British Columbia uh, and Washington State, you know, back in the 60s and 70s. Well, it wasn't a million dollars then, but it was it was the equivalent in that, in that at that time. And uh, it won't go away as long as there are millions of uh, middle class Chinese who want to see them in captivity. Um, so there's a big job equivalent to what conservation groups took on with SeaWorld and other marine parks and zoos in uh, North America and in Europe. That's a sort of um, rerun of all of that in China and uh, Japan now and potentially other areas. So that's where it stands. You know, I think it's fantastic that Russians have put these whales back. I mean, that they're, they're, that's a huge, huge step, you know. I mean, SeaWorld never put any animals back, killer whales back. SeaWorld still has Corky, one of the A5-pod whales. But Miami Seaquarium has one of the southern community, Orcas, Lolita. Those whales were never have never gone back, you know, and, uh, uh, and they've never put any killer whales back. So this is this is a huge step, and the fact that they could survive after a year is significant. So if if they survive this whole winter, and you go back there and, and we find that that we've got photo IDs for all of them, that's that that will be fantastic, you know, and that will be uh, something we should all celebrate, and and it should be celebrated within Russia too. I think there is a a growing awareness there that. Orca populations in Russia. We don't want to just send them all to China and, you know, all around the world. The same way years ago, um, when SeaWorld was going to capture a hundred killer whales off of Alaska and, um, you know, give stomach lavages to all of them and keep 10 of them and release the other 90. That was their plan. And, uh, the Alaska governor and the people of Alaska said, no, we don't want our killer whales going to SeaWorld, you know, and they stopped it. I think that plan to try to get people to connect with individuals is something that can help save all kinds of wildlife populations, keep them so that we can appreciate the natural world and so that they have, you know, they have their intrinsic right to life and we can respect that. Um, so that's, yeah, that's very important to me. So if we could put you in charge of the world for whales after all the time you spent, what would you like to see us see happen? How would you like to see the world run right now? Well, it's not going to happen anytime soon, but I, I think the, um, the health of the oceans, you know, we, it's making a place for them to live, you know, without having a healthy sea, none of it means very much, you know, the, the habitat is really the key thing. And, and letting them, you know, letting them be, letting them, you know, live, live their lives, and, you know, recognizing that they have this right to their own lives and their own um, evolutionary path, all of that. And if I could help make that happen, that would be, uh, you know, that would be my greatest uh, pleasure and, and uh, desire. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a big one uh, because we have so many competing interests for the ocean we're looking at the ocean now. We're starting to think about it beyond the exclusive economic zones into the high seas. You know, fortunately, we have the UN right now with trying to come up with a regime for the high seas that can, you know, to bring it under out of the lawless zone, so to speak. Most of the ocean is actually the high seas, more than 50%. It's still a free for all. Um, in most of the ocean, we, we really need to um, uh, pay attention to that if we're going to have these whales and other species around in the future. The kinds of things that I'm doing today, you know, are trying to make a small dent in that and to contribute to other people who are, who are working on these issues to try and um, make a place for whales in the ocean that's uh, healthy and somewhat resembles what uh, we had before 
human populations became so dominant. So, yeah, that's it. <laughs> wow. Well, that's a lot. Thank you so much for doing this. There are a million more things that I want to ask you, but uh, this interview is pretty epic at this point. So uh, hopefully I'll see you when you come out to BC and Washington. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, Mark. It'll be great. It's been uh, two and a half years since I've been out there, and I'm looking forward to touching base and, you know, taking the, the pulse of what's going on and, and seeing a lot of friends and others that I've spent time with in the past. So um, hope to see you then and, you know, that we can catch up more in the future, too. Fantastic. Thanks again for everything. Thanks, Mark. Take care. Bye. Thanks again for checking out Scanna during these surreal times. If you like what we're doing and want to help us share more stories about oceans, ethics, and the environment, please join our pod at patreon.com, subscribe to the podcast or newsletter, follow us on social media, and share the show with your friends. Heck, share it with your enemies too. Everyone has plenty of time on their hands to listen to podcasts. If this show doesn't work for you, I'm Joe Exotic. Scan is produced by the always awesome Rain Banu with audio assist from Spencer Pickles. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. Now, we'd like to end off this episode with a fantastic song from one of the best stage shows I've seen in years. Besides writing about whales, I also write about and for the theater, and I've been lucky enough to see Chelsea Hotel, the songs of Leonard Cohen, three times. The third was a few days ago when the cast of the show, including creator Tracy Power, performed live from outside their motel rooms where they were in social distancing mode in Kamloops. The show was streamed live and it's available on Facebook on the homepage for Western Canada Theatre as part of the National Arts Centre of Canada's response to COVID. Canada Performs. Stick a hashtag in front of Canada Performs to find more artists sharing a bit of magic in this madness. Over a thousand people, including Rain and I, connected to watch Chelsea Hotel live, to be together, to share an hour with strangers and friends. Studies have shown that when we're at a live performance, our heartbeats start to synchronize. For an hour, a thousand people were in sync. If you like what you're hearing, please check out the show online and think about donating to Western Canada Theatre, a company I love to support this show and all the other work they do. This is the cast of Chelsea Hotel, live outside of Kamloops Motel, performing Leonard Cohen's song, a hopeful love song, in a time when we can all use some hope. Tonight, we'll be fine. So we're going to play this last song. We also got to thank you guys for listening. Um, whoops. Thank you guys out there for listening. Thank you for not coming. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said that before to show. Thank you for not coming. Um, so we're going to do this last song. And uh, yeah, as, as mentioned, you know, if you're anything like me, you're you're pinballing every day between pessimism, between stark realism and occasional optimism in these times. And uh, I think this song is an example of cautious optimism, um, which maybe we can afford ourselves a little bit of tonight. And uh, I would describe this as a cautiously optimistic love song. This is called Tonight We'll Be Fine. Sometimes I find I 
get to thinking of the past We swore to each other That our love would surely last You went right on loving And I went on fast Now I am too thin And your love is too so much you guys thank you for listening